open your Bible up to the book of Exodus is where we're going to be tonight. We're going to be looking at one of the most exciting moments in all of the first five books of, of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Um, and, and this is the story of the account of the release of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to be. And uh, I'm going to, uh, we're going to get right into it. I'm not going to do any review on anything else we've done. But I'm going to read a, a rather lengthy passage of Scripture tonight. And I'm just going to skip a couple times throughout the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. But as I skip, I'll tell you so you'll be able to follow along with me. So I hope you have your, open, your Bible open. I hope you have something to write with if you're taking notes. But by the way, our study tonight is called That Great Getting Up Morning. And um, I'm excited about this. Uh, this evening. Exodus chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in, in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the, of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat, eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In other words, eat it ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. That's interesting. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but, but each of the plagues, had a, there was a god that Egypt ha, uh, believed in that corresponded with each of the plagues. And every time God sent a plague, it was a rebuke not only to Pharaoh, but it was, uh, it was a show of power over, that he had over all the gods of Egypt. That's, but we're not going to get into that tonight. The, the, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the ba basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their, their dough before it was unleavened, before, excuse me, before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. 430 years. 430 years. How can we here in this building, at ease, at, at rest, having been blessed beyond our own comprehension, how can we even begin to comprehend what it would mean to be the, born the son of a son of the son of the son of the son of a slave? How can, we, how can we comprehend 430 years of believing that your only heritage was slavery and that slavery would be the heritage that you would pass on to your children until the coming of the delivery, deliverer when God would set his people free. A bondage so horrifying, so excruciating, so debilitating. How can we even begin to think of it? How can we imagine what they experienced under the cruel whip of the Egyptian taskmaster year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century, nearly four and a half centuries of slavery? The horrifying bondage and the humiliation of it must be more than we can ever begin to understand. I mean, imagine having no right of disposition over your wife or your children that they might be uh, sold away from you and sent to another place. Imagine the humili humiliation of feeling that you were not even fully human, being bought and sold and forced where to live. Uh, the horrifying nature of it. You know, here's what I believe. I believe that in slavery... There is an insight into the character and nature of a life of sin that is, that is so clear, so lucid, so horrifying that we hardly dare even look at it. You know, when I was, when I was younger, um, I think when I was younger, I was angrier at sin. You know, but uh, the older I get, I'm not so much angry, but now as, as I get older, I'm saddened by it. I think when you're younger, you know, you, you, you're all filled with righteous indignation. You find yourself asking questions like, how could they do that? How, why, how could they say that? How can they live like that? But the older you get, I think you, you sort of burst into a kind of reality about the nature of humanity and you come to grips with some of your own weaknesses and, and, you're, and finally you're left with this aching, bone-breaking sadness of the bondage of sin. I mean, I wonder if you've ever been lashed, whipped, beaten to a pulp by the bondage of the taskmaster of sin. Have you ever been to visit in homes where the house just smelled like sin, where you open the door and there was a permeating odor of sin in the house? Have you ever seen lives that just seemed to be beaten down by sin? You know, every now and again, I see some poor fellow stumbling down the street with a bottle of something in his hand wrapped in a brown paper uh, sack and I don't feel any anger toward him at all. I just feel sadness. He's, he is not his own. He's, he's a slave. 
He's a slave. He's, his addiction tells him when to get up, where to go, where to sleep, and when to sleep. His addiction tells him that he must sell his body, abandon his family, commit murder, steal, rob, whatever he has to in order to obey that taskmaster, that, the cruel whip to get another drink, to get another fix, to get another dose of whatever drug he's, he's on, whatever it is. Do you see the bondage of that, the sadness of it? I believe that this sadness of sin becomes an inescapable reality to even the most casual observer the closer we get to seeing lives that are really being lived out underneath the bondage of serious sin. I believe that th this is one of the reasons why that following every time, every time in history, and listen, this, it, throughout history, every time an, an epoch of, of uh, mass slavery comes to an, end, to an end, an era of mass slavery, when it comes to an end, it's always followed by a great spiritual renewal every time. I believe that's what happened in the, in the southern part of the United States after the horrifying sin of slavery came to an end. It was, no doubt, it was a monstrous, inhuman, horrifying sin. But at the end of it, at the end of the Civil War, there was a tremendous spiritual awakening in the southern part of the United States. Now, it happened in the north as well, but it was predominantly in the south. And I believe it was because in that mirrored reflection, we we see something of the nightmare of the bondage of sin, sin that just won't let us go, sin that holds us, that pins us down and, and won't release us. I mean, I wonder if there's anyone in this place tonight who's ever felt those times when the compelling, obsessive drive of a sin just had its hooks in, in you where, where you felt that despite all of your resolute will, all of your strength of character, all of your determination of mind, you were bound to commit that sin. You ever been there? That is the most dehumanizing, discouraging, defeating feeling. Yet I believe that this bondage of sin, whether it's alcoholism or drugs or anger or violence, adultery, sexual immorality of another kind, prostitution, gossip. We don't like to throw that one in there usually, uh, but it's there. Murmuring, the, the ongoing bondage of all these things. I believe that, that that bondage is the very character and the very nature of sin. Now, here's the thing. The soul winner's attitude, far from being condescending and judgmental toward these people, is to feel what God feels, to, to feel the ache of his heart. You know, when, when God spoke to Moses on the mountain when he was sending him back to Egypt, he said that the cry of the people of Israel has reached my ears. God looked down at this slavery. He, he didn't just sit up on the brow of, of Mount Sinai saying, well, you know, the stinkers have finally got what they deserved. You know, they're, they're in bondage, they're in sin. They got what they deserved. Let them just lie in the bed that they made. 430 years, that's nothing. 1,000 years, 10,000 years, it doesn't matter. I'm through with a whole lot of them, sinners, every one of them. But instead, God's heart broke with the mournful cry. A slave mother who knelt beside her bed said, oh God, don't let my little boy grow up a slave. Oh God, don't let him die as a slave. The, the slave father who said, oh God, set us free, send a deliverer. And I believe that until you have seen that from God's point of view, you'll never really be an effective soul winner. Until you've 
seen the bondage and the nightmare of sin and felt it as God feels it, I don't believe you'll be effective in reaching out to people in bondage to sin. You know, I, I was thinking about this and I, uh, years ago in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, I don't know if you remember it, but there was a real argument that was going on among Christians all over America whether or not AIDS was a direct curse from God against sin. You remember when people were talking about, is this a curse from God, that sort of thing? Well, here's, here's the truth. It's a moot point. It's a moot point because those types of arguments are academic arguments without any purpose at all. What, what difference does it make if it's a curse from God or not? The reality of the thing is that when, when some 19-year-old boy is lying in, in an AIDS ward with, uh, in a hospital dying with open lesions on his body and nobody would even go into to the room and, with him or touch him without a mask and rubber gloves on, and, and, and if you think God looks down from heaven and takes some kind of delight in that scene, if you think God is somehow or another untouched by that boy's pitiable plight, then you, you don't have any idea who God is. You're, you're out of touch with the character of God because God's heart breaks over that. God's not sitting at the door of his hospital room gloating, saying, there you go. I told you that if you kept living like you were living, you were going to get AIDS. I hope you're happy. Well, that's just not God. That may be the church sometimes, but it's not God. God's heart breaks. God's heart aches. And as that boy lies there in his bed saying, oh God, isn't there anything? Isn't there someone? Isn't there any hope? Isn't there any deliverance? I believe that God's heart is touched by that. God said to Moses, the cry of the people in bondage has come up to my ears. And I believe that the first great reality about the story of the deliverance of the Israelite people from Egypt is God's tender heart for those who are trapped in the bondage of sin. So often we, we approach those who are trapped with sin with the judgment of God, you know, with the wrath of God, with the anger of God. And, and, there, and listen, there is that. I'm going to come to that in a, in a little bit. There is that. That is real. There's no, there's no question. There's, there, there is such a thing as the judgment and the wrath of God. However, the greater part is the broken heart of God. You know, there's a bumper sticker. I don't know if any of you ever saw it, but it was uh, printed several years ago. And it said, God is back and he's mad. You know, I mean, it's funny, but it's a pretty dismal theology, isn't it? Well, you know, I think it's a little more accurate if you just change one little letter. It said, God is back, and he's sad. I think that's a little more accurate. I believe that we, we must understand how God views our lives before we can even begin to receive his grace you know, God is not sitting up in heaven pointing his finger at us. You filthy sinner, you, you stinking liar, you, you unfaithful adulterer, you rebellious sinner, I hope you die. That's not God at all. God beholds our lives and he says to us as we're living our lives and we're plunging into sin, he says to us, oh, don't, don't go that way. Don't go that way. I mean, why did God speak so authoritatively? In the Ten Commandments. You know what I mean? He said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You know what I mean? I mean, these are, these are not hints for happy living, right? They're not the Ten Suggestions. Uh, it's very authoritative and definitive when he speaks. This is the law of God written by the finger of God on tab tablets of stone. Why was he so definite about it? 
And I believe it's because God knew that to violate those eternal standards would bring sadness, an excruciating, horrifying sadness. You shall not commit adultery. Why? He said that because he loves us. He loves us. He loves us and he doesn't want us to experience the pain of the, of the, the, uh, the, the jealousy and the, the fear and the pain and the grief and the agony that adultery, that, that adultery causes. You know, every man that, that commits the sin of adultery and then justifies his sin. I, in fact, I saw, I saw an article today uh, uh, online and it was this couple that had been, they were married and they met each other when they were working at Walmart and they fell in love and they were talking about their advice to other people was just follow your heart. It's horrible advice. Horrible advice because your heart's going to lie to you. But, but, but every, man that, every person that justifies their sin that way and say, well, we just did it because I was tired of being in a, in a lifeless marriage. And, and you know, it's, it's always, by the way, it's always all about me. I had to be happy. I had to have this. I had to have that. But, but everyone who, who justifies that, you know, the man who says, I haven't done anything wrong. I just fell in love with my secretary. I didn't do it on purpose. I'm just trying to find a little happiness in life. Well, I just want to say to that man, I wish you could sit in my office and watch your wife when tears are streaming down her face and her makeup is running down in puddles on her lap and she's saying, I've been rejected. I've, I feel horrible. I feel like dirt. I don't even want to live. That's why God says, you shall not commit adultery. It's not because he's trying to deny us access to some great sensual pleasure that the world is offering, but because God loves us so much. He says, you don't need that agony in your life. You don't need that bondage in your life. You don't need that fear. You don't need that anxiety. It's, I, I've always described it like this. His commandments are a lot like an umbrella. Umbrella is wonderful when it's raining outside as long as you stay underneath the umbrella. Right? The laws of the umbrella are designed there to protect us. And as long as we stay under his commands, we do what he says, it's, it protects us. But when, we, but when we hold the umbrella out this way and say, I want to walk in the rain if I want to walk in the rain, and then we complain about getting wet, then we're, now all of a sudden we're not underneath the protection that we have. He says, you shall not commit murder. That's, that's not just a suggestion. You shall not commit murder. You know, you know, it's amazing. I've heard people say this. I've heard politicians say it. I've even heard, I've, I've even heard preachers say this. They Say things like, well, you can't legislate morality. Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? Well, I, I just, listen, I, personally, I think that's a stupid thing to say because what, what are you going to, first of all, what are you going to legislate? Immorality? You know, every law we pass is legislating some person's version or idea of morality. Isn't that true? Every law we pass is is, is, a, is, a, is a statement on what we declare and what we believe to be moral, right? Now, you can't legislate salvation. You can't legislate righteousness. You can't make people want to do the right thing, any of those things, but you can absolutely legislate morality. You, 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 you shall not commit murder. That's the law of God. Somebody says, well, you can't enforce your morality on other people, but if somebody murders someone he loves, then suddenly he's saying, that's wrong. That's against the law. That's against the law of God because it's a basic reflection of who God is. The reason he says you shall not commit murder is to protect us, but it's also because 
He is life. So murder is the opposite of his character. He says, do not, you shall not lie. Well, it's to protect us from the consequences of lying, but it's also a reflection of the fact that he is truth. So it's, it's a reflection of his character in that way. So, so I, I mean, listen, somebody who says you can't do that, I wish that every person who wants to get all squeamish about the law of God would just take a walk down death row someday and look into the eyes of some 23-year-old boy who sits behind bars awaiting his execution as soon as all the options of American jurisprudence are, are exhausted to, to know that somebody's going to strap him to a gurney and then inject chemicals into his body that's gonna, that are going to kill him. I wish you could see the bondage in his eyes, the fear in his eyes, the loneliness in his eyes because even his own mother won't visit him and he says the world hates me and he's in bondage, lost, hopelessly. You think in that moment God is sitting up on the roof of the penitentiary saying, well, there, good, I hope you die. No, no, some self-righteous, sanctimonious Christian might be out of the front yard prison, prison saying, I'm glad you're, you're dying, for which, by the way, in the presence of God, they will one day repent, but, but not God. God. God is there. He's on death row. He's in there with that boy saying, I love you. I, I, I warned you, son. I pled with you. Put the, I pled with you to put that gun down. Don't, don't take that drink. Don't allow anger into your heart. And now the bondage of it, the sadness of it, the creeping lonely, fearsome, awesome taskmaster, the, the lash of the whip of sin's bondage. I, you know, I wish every young person could sit in the counseling chamber with me and hear the stories one after another. You know, sometimes it becomes discouraging when you're, when you're a pastor. You know, one after another, they parade through the offices of pastors all over this nation, hurting, wounded, diseased, afflicted, pregnant, lost, confused, because they wouldn't heed the plea of God, turn back. This way leads to destruction. However, if you think for one moment when some little teenage girl is sitting in my office saying, I'm pregnant, the boy has deserted me, what am I going to do? Do, do? do you think I'm going to look her in their eye and say, well, good, you got what you deserve. No, my, my heart aches for her. She's in the bondage of Egypt. And the whip of sin has fallen across her back. So why should I kick her in the head? Well, the wonderful reality of the story is that God saw the horror. God saw the bondage of 430 years of slavery and his heart broke. Oh, that's so good to know. So, so many years I lived in the bondage of slavery. So many years I knew shackles on my feet and chains on my wrists and the whip the lash, the, the bondage of sin in Egypt that was so horrifying. And oh, how wonderful, how marvelous that the, that the God of grace, instead of standing in the midst of the storm cloud on Mount Olympus and condemning me in his righteousness, his heart broke so much that he was willing to send someone to me who could point the way of, of deliverance for me. And I believe that worship services like this are are the direct, direct manifestation of the will and the heart of God. I believe that churches are the proof the, the love of, God, uh, uh, of the love of God for the sinful. I believe that every appeal, every sermon preached, every cry for repentance, every in invitation to receive Christ is manifest proof of the character and nature of God. You know, somebody's, somebody's always wanting to make fun of the evangelist and 
or laugh at the preacher or laugh at the church, but the very fact that those appeals exist and that they go forward week after week in church after church, country after country, worldwide, those, that is proof that God cares for every person who's under the bondage of sin. You know, there, there's horrible persecution going on in places, uh, particularly of Christians in places like Iran right now. God's heart goes out to those Christians being punished, being tortured, being, being imprisoned. God's heart absolutely goes out to those Christians. However, listen to this. This may, this may amaze you. God's heart goes out to the Muslim driven by the fires of fanatical Islamic faith, no less. He also is in bondage. He also is in chains. He also is driven by fear. He also is consumed with doubt and unbelief. He also is blinded by the God of this world. You know, God's not sitting in heaven looking at those involved in Islamic terrorist groups and saying, oh, I just, I hate them. That's not the character of God. It may be in the heart of America, but that's not the heart of God. As that terrorist puts a bomb in an airplane that's going to destroy the lives of hundreds and hundreds of innocent people, God cares about those people that are on the airplane, but he also cares for the terrorist as he plants the bomb and he says to him, no, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit murder. This is going to bring a bondage of nightmare and fear and loneliness and sin and depression and finally it will bring hell and eternal separation from me. Don't plant that bomb. Don't go to the airport today. Turn back. Turn back. And I believe the worldwide presence of the Holy Spirit pleads earnestly with every sinner. I believe with my whole heart that there's not a man in the hearing of my voice who has ever left home to go and carry out some sin that didn't feel something of the pull and the tug of the Holy Spirit. There's not a child, I believe, who is ever determined to tell a lie to his or her parents that didn't feel something of the Holy Spirit. Don't lie. Don't, don't lie to them. Don't, don't tell them an untruth. It will bring bondage into your life. Because God sees the 430 years of slavery different than we do. His heart aches for the sadness, the bondage of sin. However, with that said, it is also true that God will finally execute his righteousness. God will vindicate his holiness. See, th this is the terrifying balance of preaching, isn't it? On, on the one hand, I want to say to every person who is determined in their heart to do sin, God loves you. God cares for you. Turn back. This way leads to destruction. However, on the other hand, I would be half a preacher if I only told you that God loves you. If, if I only told you that God cares about you, if I only talked about the tenderness and the broken heart of God, then in that case, I'm only half a prophet. For there's this other aspect. And that is the character and nature of God will ultimately and finally judge sin and rebellion. God will eventually say, if you will not yield, if you harden your heart against me, if you stiffen your neck, if you live in ultimate rebellion, you will pay the ultimate price. And that's what happened in Egypt. Oh God, it, it is just so horrifying. It's so terrible to think of. I, I, I don't know why people won't be, believe this. I, don't, I, I think they don't because they don't want to, but why won't people listen? Why do they plunge on thinking 
that they're absolutely invulnerable, thinking that they're absolutely totally beyond the reach of any disease or death or pregnancy or problem, thinking that they can go on constantly violating the will of God and the laws of God year after year after year after year after year and not suffer horribly. Why won't they listen? I heard a story about a young man named Dennis. Dennis was from a broken home. His dad was constantly, this often happens in a broken home, his dad was constantly trying to fill his life with great things to sort of make up for the difficulty that they had experienced. Well, on Dennis's 16th birthday, his dad bought him a, a brand new Corvette. In three weeks, Dennis wrecked that Corvette. The family's pastor went with Dennis out to the salvage yard where the Corvette, the junkyard where the Corvette was being stored and and he looked at that and he had never seen an automobile destroyed like that where, where anybody ever got out, of, got out alive. It was absolutely destroyed. It was just a burned, burned out hulk. I mean, the shaft, he said, of the steering column had been punched through the driver's seat. And the pastor looked at Dennis and he said, Dennis, look at this car. Look at this car, son. How did you get out of this alive? And, and he said, I have absolutely no idea. He said, it's, it's a miracle, isn't it? And the pastor said, yes, Dennis, it's a, it's a miracle. You have been preserved by the almighty hand of God. He said, Dennis, repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right here in this burned, uh, by this burned out hulk of a car. Let's you and me kneel down in, in the salvage yard. Pray with me to receive the Lord. And Dennis said, oh, pastor, I'm not ready for that. I'm not, not ready for that. The pastor said, Dennis, what will it take to make you ready for that? Well, shortly after that, Dennis, Dennis's father replaced the car. About six months later, Dennis wrecked that car. And he, this time, though, he broke his pelvis, he fractured his clavicle, and he broke both of his arms. His pastor visited him in the hospital, and he said, Dennis, Dennis, you're getting closer and closer and closer to the abyss here. He said, Dennis, please don't do this. He's taking drugs and drinking and driving and sleeping around and living in sin and immorality. He said, Dennis, every step you take, it's like I'm watching somebody get closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. Dennis, please don't go on like this. He said, right here, right now in this hospital, pray with me. He's lying there with, with both arms in his cast and, and, he's, and he's in a body cast around his pelvis and his legs are arms and legs are elevated. And his pastor said, Dennis, pray with me. Pray with me now. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let this get any worse. You know what he said? He said, I'm too young for that. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. He just wouldn't listen to his pastor. He wouldn't believe him. Then came a horrifying night when Dennis's brother called the pastor. And he said, Pastor, will you come and go with me? He said, the police can't get Dennis to answer the door. They've knocked on the door and they can't get any response they're going to open the door and they want a family member to be there with them. The pastor went and the pastor stood there with the police outside that little apartment and it was Dennis's 17th birthday. His mother, his younger brother, pastor and the policemen were all there as they broke into that apartment. His mother had actually prepared a birthday cake for his 17th birthday and they found Dennis dead on the couch of a drug overdose. The, the pastor just agonized over the 
fruitlessness, the, the, the uselessness, the, the brokenness of it. And even there with Dennis's body, dead body on the couch, he, he wanted to say, Dennis, you fool, you fool. Nobody ever had a warning from God like you did. Nobody was ever pled with, with by God like you were. Except maybe Pharaoh. Except maybe Pharaoh. God said, Pharaoh, turn back. Obey, submit, release the slaves, break the bondage. Over and over and over and over again, Pharaoh heard. You, know, you want to know one of the most amazing lines in the entire story of the release of the Israeli captives from Egypt? It's, it's uh, during the plague of frogs when the whole land was just covered with frogs. They were everywhere. They were in the sugar. They were in the clothes. They were in the closets. They were everywhere. This horrifying plague, plague of frogs. And finally, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in and he, and he says, all right, all right, all right. I'll let the slaves go. I've had enough. I can't stand any more of these plagues. I'll let him go. You go out in the desert. You worship whatever. And Moses replied to him. And he, said, okay. he, said, he says, all right, you set the time. Tell me when you want me to pray for you, then you'll be rid of the frogs. <laughs> you know what Pharaoh said? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow? I actually have a whole sermon. Maybe one day oh, the Lord will let me preach it on, on one more night with the frogs. He's willing to let the frogs stay just a little while longer. Even then, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He repents over not listening to God and submitting to him and allowing the, the, the Israelites to go free. And so he's going to let him go. And then he repents of his repentance. He just couldn't bring himself to humble himself before God to follow through with his promise to let God's people go. So who was in bondage here, the Egyptians or the Israelis? Who was in bondage here, the, the taskmaster or the slave? And indeed, the answer is both in different ways. Having said all of that, then, the, the nightmare of it, the fear, the punishment, the pleading of God, as I said, eventually that final judgment from God comes, and, and it came there in Egypt. We all know the story, the story of the Passover night. We just read it. Can you imagine that night as the Hebrews and their little slave houses, little hovels, huts, really, the lamb having been slain, the hyssop branch dipped in the basin of blood and splashed on the sides of the doorpost and across the top, which, by the way, also forms a cross. Inside there at midnight, eating the Passover lamb, praying. I mean, just get this scene in your mind. As the angel of death descends into the streets of Cairo, into the streets of, of all the cities and marketplaces and all the little villages of Egypt, from Pharaoh in the palace all the way to the convict in the prison house, every Egyptian household was filled with death. It says that there was not one single household in all of Egypt where somebody didn't die. Can you imagine? Think about this. Can you imagine an entire country with the stink of death in every household? In every household. 
Can you imagine the, the nightmare as mothers went racing to, into nurseries and found babies dead without any explanation? Grade school age children dying in their sleep for no apparent medical reason. Firstborn men in their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s all the way up in every decade of life just falling over dead. The firstborn of every, uh, of every cattle stall, the firstborn of every household suddenly dead. And suddenly reality dawned on Egypt. The judgment of God has come. This is what Moses told us about. This is what Aaron prophesied. It's here. Death is among us. And there was nothing to do. Can you imagine both the fear and the awe of the Hebrews and their little slave houses with their little families around them, the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doors as the screams of death echoed around the land of Egypt. The Hebrews in their little slave quarters sit, slate, sit, sit safe from the wrath of God. I can only believe that they must have just trembled. Oh God, death is everywhere. Death is all around us. And yet somehow, God, you've watched over us. You've protected us. Oh, that wonderful truth. Take a lamb. You, you, could, you could take the entire book of Exodus and you could reduce it to three words. Take a lamb. Let every family take a lamb. Let it be slain. Take its blood. You know, I tell you, the, the longer I live, the simpler my theology gets. You know, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more the whole thing is reduced to what you can squeeze into two or three words. All the sophisticated theological truths I've studied and learned and read about over the years, you can reduce it all to this. Plead the blood. Plead the blood. No, no good works, no good deed. No sophisticated understanding, no education, no wealth. Nothing will prevail with God except the blood of the Lamb. Oh, the wonderful truth that God was revealing. A New Testament principle, thousands of years before Jesus was even conceived, that the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost will break the bondage of slavery and will set us free from the sting of death and sin. Let every other household visited with the, be visited with the uh, death and the horror and the nightmare of the judgment of God. But where the blood is, as Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where the blood is, is over the life. Where the blood is on the doorpost. Where the, the, the angel of death may pass so close that he can reach out and touch you. But you will walk through the river and not drown. You will go through the fire and not a hair on your head will be burned. You'll walk through the most horrifying things of life. But the angel of death will not come nigh unto your house because the blood is on the doorpost. Somebody say praise the Lord. What a mighty God. And you know I believe in that. I believe Moses stood there in his own house. With his brother Aaron on one side, his sister Miriam on the other side, his family gathered around him. And I, I think somehow he just looked through beyond the years. And I think he saw the blood on the doorpost. And he heard the screams of the Egyptian households around him. And he said, this is not just about this night. This is not about just this land. This is not just about this Passover alone. 
I believe that somehow or another, the, the eyes of the greatest prophet of, of Israel's history was able to see through the hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe not fully, you know, maybe not comprehending it the way that, same way that we do as we look back over, uh, after two, two, over 2,000 years past Calvary. But I believe that Moses saw, I believe that he knew that there was something else here, that there's something happening here. And I believe Moses knew that the great Passover night prefigured every life in this building right now. That when the angel of death moves through the streets, God has given us this wonderful declaration. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. What a wonderful truth. Oh, the, the, the joy of knowing the full deliverance and forgiveness from the death and bondage of sin. Dr. Mark Rutland, you've heard me mention him a number of times, but he told a story one time of a, of a time when he preached a uh, crusade in a predominantly Muslim area of uh, northern Ghana uh, called Bogatanga. And the, the, most of the people in that region, they speak a language, uh, it sounds funny, but the language is called Frafra. It's, it's, it's just a very unusual language title name, name. But anyway, Dr. Rutland preached that night in English and then uh, it was translated into Frafra. Well, after he preached, he gave an invitation to receive, receive Christ and hundreds of people came forward to receive Christ. Many of them brought their, their Quran to lay it on the altar, to renounce Muhammad, to proclaim Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth and to, to claim his blood for the forgiveness of sin. And Dr. Rutland prayed with them the prayer, a prayer of renunciation and then he led them in a prayer to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And then after he did this, and I've heard him say this at the end of altar calls myself when I've heard him preach, he said to all the people, I want every one of you that just prayed that prayer, I want you to look right up here at me. And he said, I have a wonderful announcement for you. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Lamb of God in the authority of the new covenant, your sins are all forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You know, we hear that all the time, over and over again, but I think you have to, if you can, put yourself into the mind of someone who's lived in fear and condemnation and guilt, constantly wondering if he's been good enough because that's, you know, Islam is all a works-based religion, so they're constantly wondering if they've been good enough, good enough. Has he piled up enough points with God? Has he obeyed the law well enough? To, to suddenly feel the, the complete release of fear and condemnation and to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is accepted by God. Well, suddenly, those people just began to cry and weep. People who had never been in a charismatic meeting in their lives, Muslims their entire lives, they began putting their hands up and praising and weeping and rejoicing. And about that time from the back of the crowd, of this crowd of several hundred people, one man just began shouting. He was shouting out something in frafra. He was shouting and shouting and shouting. And he, he pressed his way through the crowd, standing, uh, shouting out this question at the top of his lungs and Tears just streaming down his face and Dr. Rutland turned to the interpreter and he said, what's, what's he asking? What's he saying? And the interpreter, at this point in time, weeping so hard that he was almost choking, he said, Dr. Mark, he's asking, even mine? Even my sins? Even mine? Even mine? Dr. Rutland looked that man in the eyes he said, sir, I don't know what you've done or where you've been or what sins you've committed or what you think you've committed. 
but I have an answer for you from God. Plead the blood and even your sins will be forgiven. When that man began to shout in frafra and he put his hands up and then all the several hundred people began shouting the same thing over and over again. And Dr. Rutland asked the interpreter, what are they shouting? What are they shouting? And he said, they're shouting, we plead the blood. We plead the blood. What, a, what an amazing deliverance. That in a second, in a, in a split second, in a, in a moment, from, from an unbeliever, lost, on the outside, without faith, without hope, without life, suddenly birthed into the newness of deliverance. What a, what a moment when the blood is on the doorpost and suddenly we know that the judgment of God has passed over us. How marvelous to know that. How marvelous to know that all the judgment that was meant for me, all the death that was meant for me, all the condemnation, all the fear, all the separation from God that was meant for me was piled up on Jesus. That, that, that he who knew no sin became sin that I might become and be the righteousness of God in Christ. To hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to realize that he has received into his own body my own God-forsaken sin and slavery and bondage that I might walk free as a son of God. Hallelujah. That is good news. Then finally, you can see Pharaoh as he summons Moses and Aaron. Get your people, get your livestock, get your families and get out of Egypt. When we look at you we are dead men. This land stinks of death. We're under the judgment of God. We're under the absolute hand of God. We're experiencing judgment, death, and destruction. He said, get your people and get out of here. And then can you imagine that morning when, you know, I, I tell you, we put such a, a really nice, clean, neat idea, uh, this picture of what it must have looked like. But, you know, we think that somehow that Moses assembled all the Hebrew slaves and said, all right, in the streets, everyone. Now let's get in single file lines and everybody please rise and, and let's, move, uh, uh, let's move quietly toward the nearest exit. No, I don't think it was that way. I don't think it was calm. I don't think it was quiet. Can, can you imagine the celebration that broke forth among the Israelites? I, I can picture, I'm sure that they were that they were pulling out their shofars and blowing the trumpet and saying, this is a day of deliverance. Can you imagine when those Hebrews slaves ascended to the rooftops in Egypt, Egypt and as that shofar sounded that, and the blast of that trumpet split through the air, old men came leaping like nimble calves from their slave huts and they said, this is that morning that we have waited for. For 430 years we have waited and we've longed for this moment. Can you imagine the delirium, the, the joy, the dancing as they moved out of Egypt in triumph? Not in, a, not in a long and lordly, quiet procession, but as slaves released from nearly half a millennium of bondage and slavery. Imagine the old men grabbing the, up the dust of the streets in their hands and throwing it up in the air and then dancing underneath it as the dust settles down around them. Imagine the children delighting in the moment. They don't even understand the full implication of what's happening, but they're just delighting in it. We're free! We're free! And the very words of it. 
Imagine the delirious joy, the, the magnificence of that moment. And then, oh, can you, can you believe that this is a prefigurement, a picture of the rapture of the church? Do you understand? Everything that was in the, in the New Testament is in the Old Testament. Everything in the book of Revelation is in the first five books of the Bible. There will come a moment when the shofar will sound one more time. There will come a moment when the sky will split open from pole to pole and we will cast off our mortality and receive immortality and when we will defy gravity. How many of you remember the old spirituals? This is what I named it after in that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. Remember that? Kind of have a feeling of waving goodbye, right? In that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. I'm out of here. Color me gone. Man, won't that be an amazing moment when the trumpet sounds, when that shofar sounds and we leave this Egyptian principality behind us and all the death is gone? Hallelujah, what a moment that'll be. You know, some people say, well, the problem with you and all you Pentecostals or whatever, you just get overexcited about this thing. Well, I just tell you, I can't understand anybody for whom the Son of God would die who would be brought out of, uh, out of a slave hut, delivered from bondage, who has escaped death by the virtue of the blood of the Lamb, who would be promised the resurrection so glorious and so final that we would rise in glorified bodies to reign and live with Him forever and ever, who doesn't get excited. I don't, I don't understand that kind of faith. Oh, I think as they marched out of Egypt, triumphant, they were waving their arms and I think they were singing the praises of Jehovah God and they were praising and worshiping and thanking God. We're free, we're free, we're free, we're out of here, we are gone. I tell you, I just, I look forward to that moment when the church rises to meet him in the air. Scripture tells us, Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Suddenly transformed in the twinkling of an eye. You know, a lot of people think that means like the wink of an eye, but it means the twinkling of an eye. It means that Split second of a split second of a split second when a shaft of life can go into light can go into human eye and cause a reflection in a twinkle. And then boom. In that moment, we shall be totally, completely transformed into the likeness of Jesus and the likeness of God Almighty. You know, man, I was sitting with his daughter who was about three or four at the time, and they were reading the Bible together. He was reading to her. She didn't know how to read yet. And and they were just talking about it. And they got to talking about the rapture somehow. And he was trying to explain to the rapture to her as best as he could. And he was telling her about what was going on. And suddenly he felt her little arms come up around his neck. And she looked at him and she said, oh, daddy, let's go tonight. Well, hallelujah, let's go tonight. Let's do it. You know, this is going to happen. This is not, I'm talking about preacher rhetoric. This is not some fairy tale made up to entertain ourselves or to appease ourselves in tough times we're talking about historical reality historical fact when the sky will break open and the church ransomed and redeemed will rise to meet the savior in the air 
what a great getting up morning that will be. It's going to make the release from the deliverance uh, uh, from Egypt look like kindergarten stuff. We'll be rejoicing. We'll rise delighted at the sound of the last trumpet that summons, summons us into the presence of the king. And I wish I could end it right there. But there's this last thing that dogs my heels on the, about this story. And, but there's something else here. As we look at this passage, and we're going to close with this. Can you in your spirits, can you with me stand in the streets of Egypt? And we see the delight and the dancing joy of the Hebrews as they, as they left. We, we look up, though, from the streets into the eyes of their Egyptian overlords and we see hopeless despair left behind. They were never going to get out of Egypt. They were in bondage to their own bondage. As slaves go out rejoicing, Egyptian noblemen stand on the housetops of Egypt with their dead babies in their arms, knowing that they will die there. And you look into the eyes of hopelessness, utter and complete despair. And I think about those things, and this thought comes to my mind. You, you know, we, we talk about the rapture and the joy of it and the delight of it and the thrill of it, and we should. That's, it, it's all good. We, we can talk about that great getting up morning when the church rises to meet Jesus. But here's what we need to remember right now. And that is that there is a morning after the great morning. I, I tell you, it occurs to me that there is going to be some nice, decent, hardworking man who's going to wake up one morning and realize that his little spirit-filled blood-washed, born-again wife who prayed for him for 40 years to get saved has been plucked out of the bosom of his family and, and, and is gone from his bed and from his life. Teenagers will dash from room to room in their houses and, and suddenly the reality of it will dawn on them. Mom and dad prayed for me. They went to the altar Sunday after Sunday after Sunday interceding for me. Oh God, save my boy. Oh God, save my little girl. And now the rapture is over. The trumpet has sounded. The church is gone. And I'm here alone. I wish I didn't even have to contemplate such a nightmare. Egypt was left behind. But Egypt was still there. Egypt went on wallowing in its own death and despair. And God forbid that that should be for any of us. God forbid that that should be for any of our families. God forbid that that should be for anyone. He wants you to be in that great release of the slaves from the bondage of this world into everlasting joy in his presence there is fullness of joy forever, forever. And you know, listen, if you've ever thought to yourself that you weren't too sure about heaven, if you've ever had those thoughts of maybe, well, I don't know, all that time, it might be a little boring. Friend, I have a word for you on the authority of God. If you are in heaven, hundreds of millions of years, you will absolutely not be bored, not for a split second. You will never, ever be bored. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything I've ever thought of or imagined that pertain to the idea or the concept of happiness and joy will be mine in fullness every second of eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. Praise God for that. But here it is then, the crucial moment. 
The blood is here before us. The lamb has been slain. Jesus has died. God's not going to do one other thing for your salvation. He's done it all. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The hyssop branch has been placed by God in your hand. And he says, it's up to you. Will you paint your doorpost? I'm looking around, and as far as I know, everybody here has made that decision, but maybe somebody on the live stream hasn't. He's saying, it's up to you. Will you plead the blood? Will you cover your life with the blood of Jesus? Will you make that choice? Plead the blood, he says. Plead the blood or not. I love you. I want you safe. I, I don't want you to die. I want you free. I want you to be one of my children. However, I will not force you. If you want to die in Egypt, as much as that will break my heart, I will let you die in Egypt. I will not force anyone into adoption. And that's the word of God. The hyssop branch is in your hand. Plead the blood, friend. Why persist in sin and stubbornness and proudness of heart and self-righteousness with a religious spirit? You know, somebody says, oh, I've been a Baptist all my life. I've been an assembly of God all my life. In fact, my daddy was an assembly of God preacher. Well, listen, friend, if, if you present those kind of credentials at the gates of heaven, you're doomed because there's only one thing that will work. I plead the blood. There's only one answer. I don't care if you're the Queen of England or the President of the United States or a fra-fra villager in northern Ghana. There's only one sentence that will work, and that is, I plead the blood. I plead the blood. And for those of us who have pain, we've taken that, the hyssop and we've put it on the doorpost of our lives and on the lintel of our life, we've covered our life with the blood. For us, we need to remember, it's not just about us now. There's a reason why we're still here. That is because God is not willing that any should perish. So let us tell as many as we can about the blood of Jesus. They may laugh. You can't control that. They laughed at Noah. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They, they've laughed at preachers. They've laughed at the truth. They laughed at God. They laughed at the church. They, but you know what? It doesn't relieve us of our responsibility to tell all that we can about, uh, about what Jesus has done that the lamb has been slain. Forgiveness is there. Will you plead the blood? Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence today, Lord, this, this study tonight is, you talk about a contrast because we've got the highs of talking about our freedom and what you've done and the, and the day, that great day that's coming when, when you, you will, when we, you will, break open the eastern sky and we will see you and we'll be like you and this is all so exciting and it's wonderful and it should be and Lord I pray that we don't ever lose any excitement over that we don't ever lose any of the wonder of that and, and I pray God that that drives us to greater worship of you but God at the same time tonight as your, as your heart is broken for those that are in sin that are, that are going to lose out may our hearts be broken May we see them the way you see them, God. And instead of looking at them and judging them and getting angry because they sin, Lord, I pray you'd help us to have hearts of compassion. And Lord, that, that we would love them enough to tell them the truth. 
And as we do, God, we know we can't control how they respond. But God, we just want to be a tool in your hands. We want to be that voice crying out in the wilderness. We want to be the person telling other people, turn back. This way leads to destruction. And Lord, I pray you'd help us all just to make sure that our lives, that we have taken that hyssop branch and we have covered our lives with the blood, that we have, we have trusted in the blood of Jesus to cleanse our sins and in his work alone. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, you'd help us as we look forward to the day when you will return. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.